What's up, everyone? It is Hardcore Football. I'm Phil Baki. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mika Burrell. Mika, how's it going? It's going well, Phil. How are you? Decent. Hanging in there uh, through the international break. Um, not We're always at the, the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Hand clasp meme, just like asking for strength um, through these trying times. Um the I, I mean, we talked about the international break. It just, it just doesn't grasp the attention the way that that club football does. Yeah, I feel like in any other time in recent history, it would be like, eh, it's international break. It's kind of annoying, and now it's like, bro, it's a whole ass pandemic. Like, why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> like. Not only is it nonsensical in like the normal way, but even more so because like COVID. So because, it's just <laughs> because like Mo Salah goes to his brother's wedding fully unmasked and catches the Rona. Yeah, he said, "Fuck it, mask off." Like, <laughs> <laughs> which like I was reading things and they're like, "Nah, like it's you know Egyptian culture. Like he was never gonna miss the wedding." Blah blah. And, like I get that. But also, like, I'm surprised that, like, I don't know, like, do, do you think he faces, like, discipline for that from Liverpool? Or, like, that's kind of fucked up, huh? Like, yeah. we're punishing you for getting a virus. <laughs> like, I don't know how that works, you know, like, morally. What's, what do you do? Yeah, it's kind of a weird one. I don't, I don't know that, I don't know there's a right answer. Um, but it is interesting because we have seen in the past, at least, at least for Liverpool, we've seen kind of punishment or freezing out by Klopp for kind of, uh, you know, external uh, things and, and stuff that happened yeah. outside of the team. Mamadou Sako, uh, Nathaniel Klein, all kind of like high profile examples of, of players that just were banished to the shadow realm uh, because <laughs> <laughs> because of behavior um, off field. But uh, no, I don't I don't know that we see any punishment from for Mo, although you know some of it may be driven by the fact that Liverpool just need to field uh, a team of eleven players, which is becoming challenging at this point. Maybe they'll punish him by making him play at center half. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a sight that would be! Oh, I, God, God help us! Yeah, we. Uh, I don't know. Liverpool are going to be limping, limping through. It feels like um, with all the injuries, but. Um, yeah, it, I guess that's kind of the main conversation around the international break is is you know adding games to the calendar seems just insane at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, I think we all collectively, like fans, journalists, everyone around the game, kind of felt like muscle injuries would be on you know the rise anyway, yeah. just with the way that um, you know teams re- returned back to to league play with really not much of a preseason but yeah adding in these fixtures is just on top of that is nuts absolutely crazy and you see that with you see that with Liverpool of course but I mean everyone everyone's kind of getting these these injuries and it's yeah I don't know it I'm I I supported the you know three sub rule at the beginning because I was just like (laughs) let's get back to normal as quickly as possible but it does look increasingly odd (laughs) <laughs> that England has, um, you know, of course, hindsight being twenty that twenty twenty that England has um, decided not to to do that while the other leagues have. But at the same time, like 
are they really going to rotate? <laughs> right. No, I think the stars <laughs> get to play regardless. So. Yeah, that's that's the challenge I think for everybody, and and unfortunately, uh, I guess you know we'll see what what happens when the Premier League actually returns, and and how many of these injuries uh, that crop up in the international break are actual injuries versus you know the excuse to leave someone out of the lineup. Um, right. You know, right. I I think uh, Andy Robertson's for Liverpool, anyways, like pops to mind just because uh he plays for scotland in their you know uh euro qualifying playoff against serbia and then is injured for uh scotland's game against slovakia uh later in the week and it's one of those where i'm like "Eh, it seems like you know hey we got the important one out of the way and now you know it's just an excuse to rest um but we'll see what what actually pans out um come the return of the premier league but the nice thing about the international break is that obviously there are leagues and clubs that are kind of exempt uh from involvement in those sort of things and um one game that was on this weekend that was actually readily available to uh american households i guess or american viewers um, was a trip to Germany's third tier and the team that I, I follow in, in Germany, Dinamo Dresden, uh, hosting 1860 Munich, um, a, a very historic club from Munich as well. Um, and for all of the, you know, maybe the memes or the jokes around the fact of watching kind of hipster or, or watching like lower league football, um, any of the criticisms that can come out like this was a game. I, I know you, you dabbled as well as, and watched this one. Like this is a fantastic game to watch. It was a really good game. And like you said, the, you know, the main, the main thing being it was readily accessible to the American audience on YouTube, free league football on YouTube, like major key <laughs> for anyone who, for our next, you know, international break he was looking for something to watch so that was awesome but yeah i did i did tune in and it was my i'm not gonna lie it was my first time ever watching the the dritten bundesliga um mm-hmm. you know i'm a soccer hipster but not that hard <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a really good game i felt like the I, I just felt like each player was just shooting from wherever <laughs> like very like low xg shots probably but very entertaining to watch it kind of gave me like almost like north american style soccer vibes but right. with better quality players almost if that makes sense but yeah it was a, it was a really good game and and, and dinamo they have uh just as an aside have beautiful kits like too good for for the level that they're at and of course 1860 munchen are a club that you know a lot of people know having shared their their stadium with with byron and having played at, at higher levels in the past but have run into you know, financial issues and the like. So two big sides um, and really good goals in this one too. Yeah. The, the couple of goals, uh, 1860 opened the scoring and yeah, 1860, I think uh, an interesting one um, in that they do play in the Allianz uh, normally, but 
Um, this one at Dinamo, you mentioned the kits a little bit too too good for uh, the level, but the stadium too. When you see that thirty thousand seater in the third yeah. in the third tier, it's just it's a it's a little bit of a sad sight already uh, being empty due to COVID. But uh, the fact that it's you know housing uh, third tier football is a little bit sad. But the goals. Uh, worthy of any level philip steinhardt's opener for 1860 was just ridiculous volley from outside the area and as you said shooting on site but what a technique yeah yeah it was a really good goal i think the dresden defender got a little unlucky there i think he was trying to clear it and just couldn't get wrap his whole boot around it and it kind of falls nicely um to to steinhardt and it's a screamer i mean but there were a couple <laughs> screamers in this one so yeah uh that was just the first yeah yannick yeah. stark uh equalized uh just a few minutes later for for dresden and uh that was one i i really enjoyed that goal because uh stark is not a really like a box to box guy. He's, he's more of a number six, like a traditional Mm -hmm. kind of defensive midfielder. Um, but he picked the ball up in space and as 1860 kind of backed off, he just kept running forward with the ball, kept carrying it forward, carrying it forward. And then he, he has a nice little touch kind of around a defender and it opens up the space for him. And he hits one of those shots where, Somehow he somehow he generates tons of power behind it, but keeps it on the ground. And I always I, I'm always um, that's a skill. Yeah, that's a skill. And just puts it right in the corner. It's a it's a lovely strike. Um, and and equalized for Dresden. From that point, Dinamo were on top. Um, I would say and and yeah. deserved the win. It took a little bit of a mix up at the back from, from 1860 to lead to the goal. But, uh, but Dinamo did eventually find that winner. Yeah. I think it was Konigsdorfer, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, who scores a winner, but the, the start goal was my favorite. Um, I did not know that he's just a six. Like he was dribbling. <laughs> he dribbled past like three defenders, dropped the shoulder on the last one and fired. Like I thought he was some kind of like, Metzala eight <laughs> for the club, but that's awesome because it was it was a good bit of skill. And then yeah, of course, going to start against the the winner. So I'm sure that you're pleased about that one, Phil. How are they? Where are they in the league now with that result? So that took them up to sixth. Um, Dinamo definitely, you know, among the the contenders, I would say for for promotion, um, and it put them just one point behind 1860 who are in second. So second through uh, seventh separated by just the one point. Um, and in this early stages, Sarbrooken is the only uh, kind of the surprise package so far, 22 points um, to start uh, in the first, the opening 10 matches. Um, so they've created a little bit of a gap at the top, but um but yeah, a lot of familiar faces um, for anyone who kind of follows the the broader German pyramid in that 1860 Munich in second, Ingolstadt, um, who were in the Bundesliga like maybe three or four years ago. Uh, yeah, recently. <laughs> they're, they're in third. And then uh, Hansa Rostock, um, who were nearly promoted to the Bundesliga two seasons ago and then relegated last season or last season, just like total up and down uh, roller coaster. And then uh, the 
one of the fun kind of projects of of the German uh, pyramid, Turguchu Ataspor um, München, a Turkish German team that like almost has like a athletic club like approach in that they they uh you know sign turkish german players um they're up towards the top of the table too so yeah it's a really interesting uh start to the season in the third league and a few really historic clubs um in there um all with a chance of of going back up to the second division and all will all will kind of feel like they should be at that level i think um but the the interesting thing about this about Dinamo Dresden and kind of one of the things that drew me to this club in particular and you know it kind of got me thinking about East German soccer you know more generally um Dresden a historic city in East Germany along you know with other Saxon cities like Leipzig and then also obviously the capital Berlin it, you know a famous East German and and Prussian city in in Berlin um but the clubs in East Germany um and in recent seasons not a ton of them occupying kind of the top tiers of German football and the divide of east and west has kind of hung over um these east german teams for a long time it's taken them quite a while to catch back up yeah and i mean i think i think a lot of that you can't really avoid looking at at the history of why that would be i mean of course the east german clubs a lot of those were you know disbanded had to merge split up um you know following uh world war ii and you know, the occupying allies kind of <laughs> disbanding a lot of German organizations, of course, including soccer clubs. So um, they've had to kind of, I guess, ca- play catch up a little bit with some of the West German sides, you know, the Dortmunds, the Gladbachs, the Schalkes and what have you, who have not had that, you know, I guess, tumultuous <laughs> period, <laughs> um, you know, what with, you know, the biggest war in human history. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, East German clubs have kind of had to, um rebuild in a lot of ways, especially post reunification of Germany. Um, but I mean, you see at the Berlin, they've been, you know, injected with new money when are, are making a go of it, doing very well in the, in the top flight. And, um, of course RB Leipzig, you know, very controversial, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, doing very well regardless and challenging. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's cool to see the East German clubs kind of thriving and, and, uh, and making a name for themselves in the top flight. And it will be cool to see some of the um, historic clubs hopefully come through, of course, like Dinamo, like, you know, Energy Cop Bust and, and clubs like that. Um, there's a lot of big clubs. That's the thing about German football in general, too, is that a lot of huge clubs are not in the Bundesliga. Like, yeah. there are big, big <laughs> clubs, you know, not just East Germany, but Germany in general that are in the lower reaches, so... Yeah. So yeah, it's it's very interesting. Yeah, one of the uh I I think one of the things about, you know, I uh, I think it's a well-known kind of fact around maybe Spanish uh soccer in the time of Franco or like other countries in the time of these, you know, dictators or or kind of like autocratic governments. Um 
Dinamo Dresden in particular uh, benefited directly from the existence of the uh, Stasi, the East German like secret police uh, during the Cold War. <laughs> they were essentially state sponsored. And in fact, uh, the head of the Stasi ensured that Dinamo had the best players uh, in order to, to dominate East German football. Um but as a result, actually did they they won eight <laughs> East German title league titles, and then they were in Europe uh, like pretty pretty frequently um, as you know representatives of East Germany um, during the such a, divide. Such yeah. a Soviet name, the, you know, <laughs> keeping the Dynamo, the Dynamos, the locomotives. Like that's how you know yeah. those clubs have those uh, Soviet kind of origins or connections, at least. So. Yeah, it's a really um, the the whole history behind it is really interesting, and uh, and and I I'm always fascinated by it. But it is you know you bring up kind of these East German these other East German teams like uh, well Hertha Berlin. Um, fun fact about Hertha, they were founded in West Berlin, so they actually were it for all intents and purposes a West German team. Um, Whereas Union uh, founded in you know in in Berlin and uh, and they wrote out um, their time in East Berlin uh, and then you know have have risen back to the Bundesliga um, now RB Leipzig obviously benefited so it is interesting because a lot of these clubs um, like Dynamo Dresden or Erzgebirge Aue or um, Magdeburg, uh, a lot of these like historic kind of East German clubs are still kind of toiling in the lower, in the lower reaches of the German, uh, pyramid. And, and so, yeah, I'm always, I'm always fascinated to see because so much history exists and it's not, I'd say the Bundesliga is very Western centric, uh, (laughs) just by, by nature of the money involved. But yeah, it's, uh, it's always, it's always fascinating to, to kind of open and broaden, um, and in this case, watch you know two historic clubs, you know Dynamo Dresden and 1860 München, which 1860 obviously a West German team as well, you know growing coming up in the in the shadow of Bayern, um, and uh, I think we got a little bit of interesting history from a listener Patrick who talked about Franz Beckenbauer, uh, and I looked this up. Franz Beckenbauer actually was uh, about to join 1860 Munich as a youth player, ends up going to Bayern, and the rest is history. Oh my God! Ouch! <laughs> I didn't know that. That's. Oh, I feel like every club has those like ones that got away stories, but that's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he made over what, like 450 beers or something crazy for Bayern and yeah. Bayern legend, obviously Germany legend. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's bad. So, I mean, speaking of the business side of soccer and, and kind of how, clubs rise and fall we had a really interesting piece of business uh this over this international break in that i don't even know how to like begin this discussion but uh ryan reynolds and rob McElhenney uh bought a football club 
Yeah, we go from East Germany to the freaking fifth division of English football. Yeah, <laughs> <to the> Welsh <laughs> club. Stick with us, folks. It's gonna. It's a. It's an international break pot. Yeah. Um, yeah the Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney have purchased uh, Wrexham AFC, who are in the like I said, the fifth division of the English uh, pyramid. Although they are um, in North Wales. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're one of a handful of clubs that play in the English uh, setup, obviously with um, Swansea, Cardiff, and uh, oh god, I'm missing one. I'm New- missing two. Newport County. Newport County in League Two. That's right. And uh, oh, who was it? Swansea. Well, anyone Cardiff. Welsh is going to scream at me. <laughs> um, I think those are the big three, and and Merthyrtown. Yeah. Merthyrtown is also in the same like feeder league as as Wrexham, I believe. Right. Um. But yeah, no. So the so the Wrexham supporters trust uh, about two thousand members. Overwhelmingly, ninety eight point six percent of them voted to approve the takeover by uh, Ryan Reynolds and and Rob McElhenney, which is super random, but uh, <laughs> it's getting Wrexham a lot of hits on Google, I'm sure. Um. And, you know, with with the takeover, it's still subject to a lot of like regulatory processes and and, uh, approval from the Welsh FA and and what have you. But it looks like it's it's definitely going through. Um, But with the takeover, uh, they've promised to I think one of the biggest things is is to do an immediate two million pound cash injection into the club, which in these times and of a club of this size is huge. Um, They promise upgrades to, to the race course ground where the club plays. They promised to never move the club, which is like sad. But when you're when you've got American owners, you do need to actually <laughs> think about that. Um, and, and then a host of other things that they've they've promised to the fans. Um, so so yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Um, and and fun fact, not a fun fact for me, but a fun fact for people listening is in 1992, actually, Wrexham upset the reigning English champions arsenal in the fa cup (laughs) and they also beat porto in the europe european winners cup cup winners cup that Mm -hmm. year so Wrexham have some some decent history um and uh you know being that they're in the english system they could one day conceivably be in the premier league so so we'll be keeping an eye on them it's it it's really interesting. Um, one obviously, it's an interesting piece of business whenever someone as famous as Ryan Reynolds um, and Rob McElhenney, obviously of of It's Always Sunny fame, um, Mac of It's Always Sunny. Um, it's always interesting when when those type of folks get involved, but you often see them kind of on the periphery of deals like these, where oh they own a share in you know whatever, or they're involved and it's really just a branding thing and it has nothing to do with the actual business uh, side. But the they are the two majority owners, um, yeah. and they are you know taking an active role in, in the running of the club. And they've, they've spoken about um, the creation of basically a a Netflix style documentary um, around the, around the club. But an interesting quote from McElhenney, like has, has me thinking like more positively of this deal than, than cynic, you know, the cynic in me uh, is, is kind of uh, conditioned to think, um, he said, we should be thinking about Wrexham the way Man U thinks about Man U. 
engage in club communities. What a great way to do it. Um, and then Ryan, Ryan Reynolds added, it's the storytelling that gets me what the player overcame to get on the pitch. We're interested in that at every level. So the way that they're speaking about it is not typical of this sort of like glamour project. Yeah. I mean, they, they sound like they're serious about the success of the club. Now, obviously that remains to be seen. And I think as, as, soccer fans generally were all a bit skeptical now given how much money how much money has been poured into the sport and how many you know quite frankly bad actors there are in terms of ownership groups and and takeovers and wealth funds and what have you so um yeah i mean i i think it says a lot that overwhelmingly the majority of the the supporters trust approve the deal but um it is encouraging to see um to Hollywood stars like talking about this way with their project. It's not just, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like they're just trying to diversify their portfolio. Um, I'm sure that plays into it. Um, but, but yeah, um, maybe they can really, you know, take Wrexham somewhere in terms of footballing success. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's just, uh, you know, on one hand you hear they're making a documentary. It's like, Oh, okay, here's the, here's the uh, motivation, <laughs> but right. on the other, you know, you hear the statement like that and kind of dig into the deal itself and, and what it took to, to get to where they are, where they're actually owning the club now. And who knows, maybe they're, maybe they're really serious about Wrexham's success. I hope so. I mean, they, they have to be if they got the supporters on board, but, but we'll see. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a bit interesting. And I mean, the cynicism comes from a place of, uh, you know, history uh and mm-hmm. american ownership in especially english but you know uh, all foreign i i would say soccer um has begun to carry a bit of a disclaimer um uh, on it uh and a and a little bit of a buyer beware um in that a lot of fan bases have been burnt by these uh, kind of absentee american owners in the past um, so what do you think about the impact of all this American investment in the foreign game? And what does it say about, about the sport more generally, I guess? Yeah, I think that, you know, being an American, obviously I'm going to be extremely biased no matter what, <laughs> but I mean, on, on the one hand, I, I like it cause I think Americans in general, um, we're pretty business savvy and you know, we're, we're good at building these kind of things um, and maintaining them, making sure they're profitable, making sure they're um, successful. Um, You know, that entrepreneurial spirit, that's very much the fabric of our, of our being as Americans, you know, for better, for worse. On the other hand, you know, there are, there are um, instances where American ownership has not necessarily seen eye to eye with the fans, especially in Europe. I mean, the the latest, maybe not the latest example, but one that always comes to my mind is kind of um, Jim Palota's reign at Deus Roma. Um, you know, towards the end there, he was very much at odds with the fans, given how Roma had treated, um, you know, Totti and how he left. Um, De Rossi, they just felt like they were just, completely crapping on AS Roma's history and their legends. And, um, and I think he actually is selling the club or 
or already sold the club to another American billionaire, <laughs> um, Dan, Dan Friedkin. So hopefully that one, that relationship bears more fruit. But um, so, yeah. And then, of course, you know, there's your Manchester United who, you know, the Glazers, very, very controversial owners. But then you see Liverpool with Fenway Sports Group and all is well, it seems, right. uh, on Merseyside. <laughs> so, so I mean, you have all these all these examples. Even in, in France, there's American ownership. Toulouse is owned by uh, American Venture Capital Group, if I'm not mistaken. Marseille, owned mm-hmm. by the former Dodgers owner. I mean, we're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think it's us. I think it's the U.S. as a clear leader of the single largest single nation of, of, of soccer ownership. A lot of those numbers boosted, obviously, by MLS. And then, um, you know, the, the clubs in England, in France, in, in Italy. Um, and then I think after that, it's China or the next biggest country for, for ownership of, of football clubs. So, yeah, um, I think we I think we have to be careful not to paint too broad a brush because, you know, for every Jim Bolota, there's probably a, a Fenway sports group. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, but... Um, I think the only thing, or not the only thing, but one of the big things that I think from a European perspective they might be skeptical of is the fact that we have, you know, Americans have this franchise kind of system and and way of thinking about professional sports and with, you know, talk of super leagues and things like that and closed systems. I can see why from the European perspective it would be alarming that Americans are, you know, investing (laughs) in the game um so so heavily um in recent in recent years so um obviously we you and i and others are very much wanting promotion relegation in the united states but those with the money um are not too interested in that here so right hopefully that doesn't make its way to europe anytime soon or or ever yeah it's well it's interesting because uh, i feel like american owners have this uh this interesting kind of dichotomy, I guess, almost where they obviously they see uh, soccer clubs at a lot of different levels and in different countries and in different league systems, they see them as enticing investment opportunities because of the growth potential, but the growth potential only exists as long as there is promotion and relegation and there's this right. ability to, to, to truly grow. So the interesting thing and something that I think we are seeing currently is this kind of divide between you have these type of American owners who are like, I want to get in on the ground floor and, and, create something, build a project and, and be able to maybe whether it's, you know, for the, for the prestige of it, of, you know, winning trophies or, or anything like that, or whether it's just, you know, purely from a monetary standpoint of, I bought this club for a million, a million dollars and I'm selling it for a billion. Um, that's, you know, that's the, (laughs) I guess that's the dream. Um, but you know, there are a couple of different motivations but it's interesting because I think there's almost a clash of these American ideals where it's like, I want the growth opportunity to exist as long as I need to grow. And then once I'm done, then I need everybody else to not be able to grow, which is a very like kind of that, you know, I guess that whatever the, you know, crony capitalism, like whatever, like final late stage capitalism, whatever you want to call it. Um, (laughs) 
the but I think so I think you see this battle currently where there are certain American owners who are trying to close things off while they are at the top and while they're you know at kind of the height of their investment whereas at the other end you have um, these whether it's venture capitalist groups or or other you know just investors um, even like uh, the CEO of Disney owns Portsmouth like that's right uh, you know um those are the type that have had some serious financial issues over the years yeah so those are the type of projects um like them or swansea uh, you know that and they're looking to not be shut out so it's an interesting you can't really paint with this broad american brush because they all do have like very different interests um especially you know depending on what country or or uh division or level that they're at so yeah it's a it's an interesting issue but there is there does seem to be a growing kind of appetite for for american uh you know owners and groups to to invest in these sorts of projects and um the only real practical downside that i see from from the club's perspective is uh stuff like what was documented in the uh leads uh Amazon documentary where they tried to buy Daniel James from Swansea and uh every single time they called over there they were like oh well we got to get a hold of the owners back in the US and uh timing wise it was completely like thrown off and they're not answering the phone and you know it's too early or it's too late and and that sort of thing so uh from a practical standpoint i can see some of the challenges when you're trying to run the finances through you know tampa florida versus uh versus (laughs) nottingham or whatever but um but yeah it's a it is an interesting and not at all monolithic um sort of group yeah yeah and another thing that i find kind of fascinating i'm only just kind of thinking about this now is you know we when we speak about the psgs and the cities of the world and and how they are funded literally by states um with the idea being that these that qatar and 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 abu dhabi and those places want soft power you know and the this idea of soft power being and sports washing where you kind of invest in these clubs because you would like to have both more influence in in the sporting world, but also um, kind of power washing your your reputation with yeah. your sport. And and I wonder, you know, I, I don't think I've seen any kind of discussion of whether the American perspective is is similar. Do I mean I wonder if basically I wonder if American investors want some of that soft power for themselves, um, just because. I mean, I I don't think it's, I don't think it is, um, well, I guess it is kind of peculiar that you see these Hollywood types, especially starting to invest. I think in in Swansea, it's kind of a whole consortium of investors, but some of them are, I think like Mindy Kaling from The Office (laughs) was one of the owners in in Swansea and uh, was or is um, uh, LeBron James, you know, 2% in Liverpool in, in Fenway Sports Group. So I wonder if if there's a little bit of that too, where it's like they want some because, and the reason why I say this is there must be that kind of want that kind of desire for influence and soft power is because really when you look at the numbers, soccer and sports in general are actually very fine margin businesses. Like yes, you make a ton of money, but there is a ton of expense and debt to be taken on. Whereas 
you know, a grocery chain, like the margins are much, or maybe that's not a good, maybe that's not a good uh, example, but other, you know, like fortune 500 companies, their margins are much bigger. And, and there's, there's other places to park your money where, where it's not so thin. And so to me, it's like, well, there's gotta be some other value you're extracting from this because it can't just be the the balance sheet at the end of the day, because sports are sports clubs are extremely expensive to run their, <laughs> their fine margin, fine profit businesses. And, you know, there's better ways to, to, to invest your money. So I think it has something to do with that too. Yeah, I, I'd say, I'd say so. Um, and, and certainly it's a, an interesting, uh, thing to unpack because, you know, uh, like you said, you know, there's, there's kind of all over the, you're all over the spectrum with the sort of, uh, sort of American owners, like, the Fenway sports groups who, you know, really gain the, uh, the admiration of, of the fan base. And then you have their immediate predecessors, uh, Tom Hicks and, uh, and Gillette who literally had, uh, protests occurring outside of Anfield, um, because of their <laughs> mismanagement of the funds and, and, uh, kind of their approach to running the team. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, um, dynamic and one, like you said, there's, there's a lot of different, uh, stakeholders and, and people all trying to kind of get, uh, different things out of, (laughs) out of the game. Um, but we'll stick on Americans, but we'll shift, uh, just ever so slightly, uh, to the playing field and the one part of the international break that maybe got some people excited, uh, especially here in the U S uh, do you want to take a quick break before we dive into the U S men's national team? Let's do it. Welcome back to Hardcore Football. Mika, the U.S. men's national team, we spoke last time about the selection and, and how this was an exciting young team um, that the U.S. was was trotting out for these, these couple of games. Um, most recently, the U.S. played Panama. Uh, when they win 6-2, and with a... A lineup, you know, that a lot of people, a, a few players that are being very heavily talked about and, and really just generating tons of excitement um, on uh, on all kinds of social media. But what did you make of, of the U.S.'s performance and this, uh, this you know, admittedly very young lineup um, and this result against Panama? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to find anything to complain about with this one, obviously. Anytime the U.S. can put up six goals on someone, it's incredible. Um, and, and with such a, like you said, such a young squad, I mean, I think the only player really over, what, 25 in that starting lineup is maybe like Tim Ream. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Maybe Matt Miazga. I don't remember how old Matt Miazga is. But other than that, I mean, it's literally like kids. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we still concede two goals to Panama, who are a side that have not scored more than one goal since before the coronavirus pandemic when they scored two <laughs> against Honduras. So, um, obviously, something leave something to be desired defensively. I think, I don't think Miazka and, and Tim Ream is a long-term partnership by any means, but um, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun just to see Reina, Joaquini, Soto coming off the bench with a brace. I mean, even yet jet who is mm-hmm. obviously an MLS player, he played well too, and also got on a score sheet. So um, the future is now. <laughs> it's very exciting indeed. I think I'm allowing myself to get a little bit excited. Yeah, I think I think what's so cool about this team is, you know, there is no I think in the past the the US men's national team has often resembled like like you know, it's hey, first round draft pick, this guy, uh, you know, MLS super draft, this guy generation adidas this guy like and it's all (laughs) college graduates and like guys who went through the kind of traditional like u.s sports approach um and what's so unbelievable i think and and kind of stunning in a way just it with the quickness that it kind of all took shape um about this lineup is the fact that you know almost to a to a man each of these players has taken kind of the traditional like european development approach and they've gone to europe they've challenged themselves um i know legit is is still in the uh you know in mls and and everything but in the starting lineup you know Gio Reyna, like you know obviously son of a u.s legend but um cutting his teeth with Dortmund and getting, you know, I mean, he is a starter for Borussia Dortmund at 17. Um, 18, just turned 18. Yeah, just turned 18. (laughs) Still though. Giacchini is, is playing in the second division of France. Like he's cutting his teeth, you know, in a, in a genuine team in Cannes and, and then Yanez, Adams, McKenney, like Musa, they've all come up through, genuinely good academies and they've they've really had to work for their place um and i think so much of so much of previous generations of the and previous iterations of the u.s team have been defined by kind of like well this is what we have um and each of these guys are are you know they they kind of define this this different approach in this like nope i'm not stopping here like tyler adams i'm at new york red bulls works his way all the way up and now he's at Leipzig and, and it's the, you know, he's um, a big player there. So I, I just think in each of these players, we have a right back who is literally starting for Barcelona these days. Like, um, so who chose us over, (laughs) over the Netherlands. Netherlands. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's right to be excited about, I think you're right to be excited about a team like this. And, um, as as much as that excitement exists, I think it's also fine to admit that <laughs> Miazga and Reem as a partnership, and indeed, I think Miazga and Reem individually, not it uh, for for this <laughs> uh, for this team, and and I think center, I think central defense is going to continue to be an issue uh, for for Berhalter. Um, 
but you know john brooks i think is is kind of the the easy you know solution in terms of who we look at um and the two goals you have to be a little concerned but ultimately with this team i think there there's there's optimism for a reason and it and it goes into the the first question we received around uh the u.s men's national team from at ramos 5173 thoughts on the performances and should there be excitement about this youth group of players i mean i think the answer is yes <laughs> certainly yes yeah yeah um I mean, the performance was fantastic. Obviously, you know, we need to realize that we're playing Panama and, and even Greg Berhalter is, is undefeated against Panama. So, um, um, yeah, I mean, we got to think about that, but you know, you can only play who's in front of you as the old saying goes. And, and we played very well and, and didn't really, I, I, Panama were in the match, you know, in the beginning, in the yeah. first half. And we just never, stopped and it's i think this is actually our the most goals we've ever scored on european soil because the game took place in austria if i'm not mistaken so it did i mean it's it's awesome breaking records and 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 letting these these kids come up and 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 show what they can do um so yeah i'm very pleased with the performance i can't really ask much more from from these young players and uh yeah i think we we can definitely allow ourselves to be excited um and, and see where it goes yeah, the uh, the story in the late stages of this one was the the link up between the two subs, Sebastian Soto and Ricky Ledesma, um, and two more players who are cutting their teeth at at kind of legit legit team. Ledesma, you know, in the Eredivisie and uh, and lays two on a plate for Soto to nod in. Yeah, yeah, the Dutch connection, I guess. <laughs> it's it's really cool to see. It's cool to see players actually take their chances, you know, because you you see these players that you want, you know, especially when it comes to USMNT, is is you want to see all these different players that are in Europe getting their chance, and it's nice when you see a player actually take it when they get it, um, and you know, to get a brace off the bench. To, there's only a handful of players in, in our nation's history who have scored multiple goals. Um, I think only like five other players before him, four or five. So, um, you know, it's, it's very impressive. Um, but I want to ask you going, going back a little bit, sure. Phil, to your point about Miazga and Reem, who do you think is that center back partnership for the future? I think, I think we, John Brooks probably given, but who do you think he could partner I don't know. Like <laughs> I struggle, I struggle quite honestly with this because um, uh, I think the issue run it, you run into in actually finding uh, center backs to play for the U S is we look in MLS and a lot of the guys who play in MLS are not paid as well as the attackers. And it's for, you know, good reason i guess (laughs) they they often don't invest in uh in in defending quite like they do in attack um i I mean miazga to me has had well the chelsea move i think is proving to be a complete disaster quite honestly um and obviously he hasn't turned out for chelsea he's been part of the lone army um for a couple of years and i think that has really stunted whatever uh development path he was on um tim ream at fulham i I just don't 
think that highly of Tim. Um, but I do think, I think in the current pool and you can see in the team that's been named, John Brooks is the only other center back like available out of however many, you know, 23 or senior center back I'll say. Um, cause I think there are players on the bench who, who could have like deputized at center back, but in terms of like genuine options, John Brooks is the only one on the bench that jumps off the, jumps off the page. So I, I'm just, uh, I'm not really sure who, who that partnership is, uh, long-term because I don't know that, that Miazga or, or Reem are fit for it, but Miazga may get the nod just, just through virtue of being the, the best option available. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I think for me, obviously, I think a lot of it will depend on how um, Chris Richards develops at Bayern. Yeah. Um, obviously, he's only 20 years old, if I'm not mistaken, and, and playing in Bayern's second side, although I think he's been with the first team at least sometimes. Yeah, he has. Um, yeah, so I think that it depends on that. A player that I, you know, admittedly don't know a whole much of a, a whole ton about but would at least like to see is Cameron Carter Vickers mm. um I think he's on loan at Bournemouth this year uh but uh Tottenham Hotspur property um <laughs> and, and uh grew up in England but uh declared for the United States and has made a handful of appearances he's he's 22 now so I would think in terms of age profile he's probably the best fit age and, and, and European pedigree, I guess, but I don't know how well he's doing or not. Um, he's been loaned out a bunch of times by Spurs. So uh, I don't know. Those are the only two that really I can, I can think of, but yeah, I think center back is probably our, our issue. Um, if there is one, we've we're got an embarrassment of riches in attack and, and midfield arguably, which is crazy to say, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it remains to be seen kind of what we do at the back there. Um, but yeah. Well, speaking of this glut of attacking talent, um, obviously a lot of the hype recently has been around the likes of Gio Reyna. Um, but Patrick from from earlier we spoke about his his little tidbit on uh on 1860 München but he also asked has Christian Pulisic uh suddenly become sur- surplus to requirements in the men's national team has he become old news at such a young age <laughs> Damn. No, I don't think so. That's pretty <laughs> That's pretty harsh. Um I mean, I guess it is a fair question in the sense that Christian Pulisic is, I think it's fair to say now at his age, he's, he's 22 years old. No, I'm talking like he's old. He's not, but we've seen enough of him at the, at the, uh, in the top flights of Europe to, to, I think say that he is injury prone. Yeah. Um, he gets a lot of muscle injuries and hopefully that's something that maybe works itself out with age, but you know, I'm not a, I'm not a physician, so I don't know, but (laughs) yeah, he, uh, it's about staying healthy for him. I think, um, the only thing that's really surplus to requirements is those freaking hamstrings right now. (laughs) Um, they're giving him a lot of, uh, a lot of issues. Um, but no, no, I think Christian is very much still part of the, the future of this side. And, um, 
I think, you know, a lot of attention has been put on Gio Reyna, and rightfully so, because he's been incredible. But Christian Pulisic is still a fantastic player, arguably Chelsea's best player um, in the restart uh, after after the Premier League came back following um, the, the lockdown. So um, he's just been unlucky. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say he's old news <laughs> just yet. He's only 22. So, I, I mean, for the sake of the U.S. men's national team, obviously, I hope that the injury problems work themselves out and that he that he continues to to be a, a class player. Yeah, I think when available, he's he's an automatic selection still. Um, you know, there there is no um, shortage of potential in in attack for the u.s um but in terms of established players at the highest level uh i mean pulisic and reyna are and reyna is you know i think still even a stretch to say he's established he's had a good start to a season at dortmund so we have to uh be careful before we uh cast aside those players who i mean pulisic when he was healthy at the end of last season and the and the beginning of this, um, he was unplayable borderline. Um, like he was there, he was going through stretches where he was Chelsea's best player, um, especially towards the end of last season. Um, I don't know that Arsenal would have won the FA Cup had he not yeeted his yeah. <laughs> while scoring a goal, right? Um, against Arsenal in the final, so yeah. yeah. So I just think I, I think he's automatic selection still. Um, but yeah, the problems are definitely there in terms of in terms of his injury proneness. And, you know, you just worry about a guy in that position because um, availability is almost as important as ability. Um, sure. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just I I do. It does concern me um, that he does spend so much time out um, with those sort of injuries because um, I think we've we've seen players like him in the past who you know haven't been uh, able to make as much of an impact because they're just not available um, for selection. But if he if he's healthy, he's yeah automatic for this team, and I think especially with these players coming up through the ranks and the potential being there. I think having a a presence like him around the team will be important too, as he matures into kind of more of a veteran and, uh, and, you know, um, as we look forward to some of these international tournaments, uh, he's going to be looked to as, you know, one of the senior heads around this team, Um, you know, especially, especially now. So, yeah, I think I think he still very much has a place. It'll just be interesting to see what his role is, um, given you know whether he can stay healthy or not. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I'm looking at his injury history now, and um, you know, Grant, I don't know how how accurate this is, but all, he had a lot of like small injuries at Dortmund where he'd miss like one game, two games, up to three games. Chelsea, he's had injuries that had him miss eleven games, seven games. It's it's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean the Premier League, you know, for sure is more physical. So, um, and also I think Pulisic has bulked up quite a bit. So I wonder if there's any of that like shades of Gareth Bale going on there. Um, <laughs> but you know, well, just something we'll have to keep an eye on. The yeah. 
or <laughs> is it the Goretzka, the Goretzka bulk or the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the Goretzka bulk is insane, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, he looks better for it. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the big name and a player who's, uh, you know, really kind of announced himself uh, on the international stage, not just uh, for the men's U.S. men's national team by virtue of his call up, but for Valencia as well with a, some important goals playing well in a what is a troubled side uh, there in Spain is Yunus Musa. He gets two starts with the U.S. men's national team which in the past would have meant he's locked in and committed to the U S but he is an English national, uh, you know, grew up, grew up there still has the opportunity to switch allegiances, uh, despite playing senior games now for the U S and Jay Konecki asked, do you think two starts in a row was enough to convince Yunus Musa to stay with the UN's U S men's national team? It's hard to say, isn't it? Um, one thing I noticed, and maybe I'm getting a little too, like, intangible, but he looked extremely happy <laughs> to <Yeah>. be playing <laughs> for the U.S. men's national team. I mean, you know, when they take the picture with the the pen, pendant that they get from the other side, and he's kind of, like, kneeling down on the front row, and he's just, like, beaming. Uh, he just looked genuinely pleased to be playing um for for the side so i hope so um but it's he's he's 17 years old i mean he's probably has has so many different people in his ear talking about what's best for him and i just hope that he's well advised um and and i think he is because like we talked about on the last um episode i think it was a big deal for him to leave hale and to leave arsenal's academy and, and go abroad so I think there is that that kind of adventurous spirit about him that that wants more for him, even if it means quote a step down, you know, to to get in the door and get playing. So I don't know. I, I wish I knew. I wish I could say yes. I hope so. <laughs> Let's put it out there in the in the atmosphere that it'll yeah. happen. He looks genuinely class. I mean, he just for a seventeen year old, the decision making was insane. Like. I just felt like he really could, didn't do anything wrong. Right. <laughs> and he was playing in midfield um, in, in a three, kind of one of the attacking eights. And he's not really, I mean, he's a winger for Valencia. So, uh, you know, more of a forward. So it was really, really impressive. I thought, I thought these two games for him were, were really, really encouraging. And hopefully he'll, hopefully he'll choose us um, and <laughs> reject the colonial overlords. Um, <laughs> But, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I think I think like you said, it's so tough to to pin down, especially when he is 17 years old. He's still got so much of his career ahead of him, um, and obviously the U.S. have taken a step in being able to lock him down uh, in in you know giving him caps. Um, but you know, the new rules don't, don't, uh, they're not as committal as they used to be. And, um, I, I, I do think, like you said, there's, there is a genuine joy there from, from Musa and, and there is this, this feeling that 
he is kind of following the path that he that he wants but there's always the opportunity for England to start making promises and you know um there could be you know the cynic in me is you know he he leaves Arsenal to to go to Valencia um he accepts these call-ups from the U.S. The cynical side is, you know, he could be using both of these kind of opportunities as stepping stones to to elsewhere. Um, And that's not a judgment of the kid or anything like that. If that is what's happening, it's, you know, everyone has their goals and has their their ultimate, uh, you know, where they see their career going and and kind of how they see it getting there is is all different. but I think in the meantime, it it was it's just extremely encouraging, along with Serginho Dest, um, that you know the U.S. wouldn't have had a snowball's chance in hell of attracting this type of player um, in the past. Um, and you know, in fact, they've missed out on high profile international like dual internationals uh, like very recently. I think Gio, uh, Giovanni Rossi is like probably the the most high profile one. Um, yeah. when he went to, you know, to, to the Utsuri and, and played for Italy and actually scored against the U S in the Confederations cup in 2009. Um, yeah. never forget, but anyways, the, uh, yeah, the whole, um, I think the whole kind of persona and just the identity of this team is, is shifting, um, you know, as more of these young players come in, as more of these dual internationals come in, there's just a different vibe around. It's less of this like country club <laughs> vibe that the men's <laughs> national team used to have. And, and it has, there's just a little bit of a swagger about this team right now. Um, and if that attracts a guy like, like Eunice Musa to, to turn out for the team, then, then, uh, yeah, long may it continue, and hopefully Eunice decides to commit to the project. Yeah, and and the other thing too that I that me personally I hope comes of his hopefully continued development in in the U.S. men's national team side is hopefully an interest in um, Americans going to La Liga. I I've always wanted that to become a thing just because of the way that that Spanish football is played and the emphasis on, on technical quality, something that I think is starting to be emphasized in American academies, but still has a lot of catching up to do. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, you can potentially play in the first team in La Liga, maybe not as, as easily as in, in the Bundesliga, but um, hopefully that, that uh, hopefully that becomes a pathway for our, our young talents too is, is Spain, um, especially maybe some of our um, talents that have, you know, latino heritage maybe um but yeah just my my little side thing everyone who knows me knows i love that you so <laughs> <laughs> well and that's what i think i i just think it's so encouraging um to see these these players you know uh, I, obviously i think all of all of our talk about this iteration of the u.s men's national team has to come with the disclaimer that you know some of these guys are true truly like dual internationals in the in the idea that like they 
have not like set me spent any meaningful time in the United States or really like their connection to the United States could be quite loose compared to, you know, um, the past. And I think, I think the, the commitment for now is obviously, you know, we should build a project that that type of, of player feels comfortable joining, um, and, and is able to, to, to feel a part of, um, but I think long term, the goal should be to, you know, can we produce a Serginho Dest of our own um, right. and not hope that <laughs> not hope that there's some Dutch kid out there who, you know, like has has the, the requisite, uh, you know, relations to be able to qualify for for playing for the U.S. So, you know, there's still work to be done in the sense that our our academies, uh, you know, have have some distance to close with with some of those but it's just always i I think overall it's just encouraging to see the makeup of the team change um and and move away from like i said that kind of country club vibe and i hope the the end state is more american kids kind of pursuing this um this approach where they take that chance you know, go and try to try to make their name in, you know, cut their teeth in a European Academy and like Christian Pulisic, like Gio Reyna, like, uh, you know, like, well, I guess now, you know, McKenney, Tyler Adams, these guys who they left American clubs to be able to go, you know, try to hit a higher level. And, um, it's no disrespect to those players of the past generations. Like, uh, I mean, Landon Donovan is the most, is, is the most high profile where, you know, he took a couple of those loan spells in, in, uh, in Europe. And I think with Everton, like most, most, uh, notably, but he never really like gave it a shot. He never really like cut ties and, and just said like, I'm going to go try to, try to make it in Europe. And, um, so it's just, it's just encouraging to see that, that more and more kids, uh, from, from this generation are, are kind of making their way and, and trying to, trying to make it at the highest level, like the recognizably highest level of the game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still just have to, I look at this lineup and it's like, wow, our right back is, from Barcelona, our midfielder, our midfield anchor is Juventus. Yeah. Like that's <laughs> insane. Like, <Yeah. laughs> like, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. We've come uh, the the U.S. men's national team has come a long way. Truly, yeah. long may it continue. And if all this fails, we'll just build more military bases all over Europe. <laughs> <laughs> it's worked so far. It's You're worked right. so far. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think this, uh, the, the questions around, uh, around the men's national team will continue to kind of ebb and flow as you know, that for every six, two over Panama, there's going to be that, that, you know, questionable result, uh, that comes through. And with a team as young as this, I think the, overarching vibe has to be patience. Um, and for sure, um, my only, my only remaining question mark aside from center back is going to be with the manager himself, Greg Burhalter. Can he manage? And Mika, I'm interested for your thoughts on this. Can Greg Burhalter, is he the guy that can take this team to the heights that it could potentially reach? 
I just get Gareth Southgate vibes from him. Like <laughs> American Gareth Southgate vibes. Um He's just gonna wear a he's gonna wear a vest in the next in the dugout the next game. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um I don't like Greg Bohalter particularly. Um obviously he's the one driving the boat at the moment, so I will support him as long as he's in the job, unless he does something insane. Um but yeah, I'm not huge on him, to be fair. Um, I don't I, – I would say right now, gun to my head, no. Like, I don't know that he can get the most out of this side, but I don't know. I mean, maybe we just need to trust the process. <laughs> <laughs> I just always think about a player like, you know, Tyler Adams, like coming from Nogglesman, who is this kind of like – heralded and you know like hyped young young manager in europe and then going on international duty and talking to greg berhalter like that's just jarring for me like yeah you know and i don't know how it is for these players they could love him for all i know um yeah well it is it is weird to go from like andrea pirlo to like (laughs) greg berhalter or (laughs) ronald kuman like it's yeah it is a little bit are we being a little self-hating there with like our, our bear halter takes? I mean, I guess we kind of are, but kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's inevitable uh, when you you know like dude manage the the Columbus Crew and versus you know like who would you if you could pick our U.S. men's national team boss like. Say Berhalter's fired tonight. You're firing him tonight. Who's who's taking that job for you? Oh my god, Uh, Mark Lowry. No, (laughs) (laughs) no, I don't know. Uh, No, I uh, I think I know. In the past, they've been they've been linked with all kinds of with all kinds of big names, and I know. Lopetegui was was thrown around at one point uh but no I think um gosh I don't know like I'm trying to think of those kind of managers who have really just been almost like mercenaries at a high at at like the international level um man I don't know is there any is there anyone that like you would immediately want to target I do have one. Um, I don't think he's ever managed an international side, but just because of like his pedigree and his influence on other coaches and the players he's identified, giving them their big break, I would I would be really interested to see how Ralph Rangnick would do with this side. Well, that's an interesting that's an and interesting shout. And he's not employed right now, as far as I remember. He, um, last having managed RB Leipzig, he was going to take over at AC Milan and then that fell through. So, yeah. And I know he had for a while, he had some sort of, uh, like maybe director of football or director of scouting, uh, position for like global Red Bull, like the whole yes, Red Bull chief, network, chief director of global football. And that's the thing too, that kind of makes him attractive is, He's got business sense too, right. which I think is quite important for the U.S. men's national team. To be fair, yeah, um, they are a, a marketing vehicle as much as a sporting one. So, 
Um, I don't know. I think that would be really, really interesting. I wonder what he could do. Like, I would give him the keys. Like, just looking at his resume, like, yeah, the whole like sporting department of of our of our team. I would, I would trust him. That's a legit shout because he does. I, and I mean, we've had, we've seen in the past with like Jurgen Klinsmann, the getting the technical director slash you know, men's national team manager job is, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can be done and directing the whole program is certainly different from managing game in and game out. So, um, yeah, he'd be an interesting one for the, for that type of role too, um, where you give him a little bit more leeway or a little bit more control over, um, more of the program, but and his connections, you know, we'd probably end up with like half our half our national team in the Red Bull system. <laughs> like <laughs> all the young yeah. players end up at Salzburg, and all the established players end up at Leipzig. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's my like shout. That would probably never happen, but I just yeah. I'm just gonna fantasize about that for now. <laughs> I know there was there was rumors thrown around at one point of Bielsa when he was uh, unemployed of Bielsa going to the men's national team, which is so funny to me because it, I cannot picture it. But no. I will throw that out there. Just like just imagine Bielsa doing like press conferences that ESPN showed on like their main network, like during oh World God. Cup qualifying or something like that. I mean, he had, you know, good. He's shown that he can make that kind of jump between club and and national team management because they are two very, very different jobs. But he's had success on both sides of that coin. So for sure. um, Yeah. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I think it'll be at Leeds a a bit longer. But yeah, Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, Wow. Hmm. We'll have to. We'll maybe we'll have to ask our listeners like who they would want to take that because like yeah. we all talk about how like Greg Berhalter is like meh, but I've never seen anyone kind of say this is who I would want instead. So sure. Um, yeah. We'll Let, see. We'll let's see. pose the question. Let's uh, if if you who do you think if if you think it would be Greg Berhalter, that's fine. But yeah. who do you think is is the person to take this this version of the u.s men's national team to its full potential um let us know at hxc football uh on twitter send us tweets send us fleets um oh whichever God, <laughs> that's a thing i don't know are all tweets fleeting anyway like what? I, why was this necessary yeah i uh <laughs> i don't know i think you know whatever it's just for uh, maybe the it was designed for fernie's for fernie's takes i don't know <laughs> uh, <laughs> just they disappear into the ether after 24 hours thank god no I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding fernie we uh we love you um uh, so mika as we close things out we always we have our sounds of the season spotify playlist um which uh fans can find on spotify you just search uh hardcore football you can find our episodes you can find the the playlist we had a couple of couple of songs a piece uh each week all types of metal hardcore punk alternative whatever type of of music all all of it gets thrown in and mika i'm really interested to hear 
for this international break, this uh, this in between. What do what do you have for the sounds of the season playlist? Well, you know, I always got to go on the nose with at least one of my choices. So my first one is a song called The Process by a band called My American Heart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The lyrics aren't necessarily about trusting the process, but it's still a a very good song. A a band that came out of San Diego's kind of post-hardcore scene. And um, it's a good song, good band. so so it goes it's and i i dedicate it to of course our 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 uh, beloved u.s men's national team for for a very good international break indeed so that's my first one um my second song is more looking forward to the return of the premier league and, and european football in general i've gone with a song called england's dreaming by boston manor a band that are out of a black pool um very good band. Uh, if you have not heard them, check them out. They've been pretty much all I've been listening to all this week. Uh, and so, yeah, those are my two for this week. What about you, Phil? I, uh, I went lyric lyrically, uh, like on theme, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, so for the men's national team as well, um, the first, the first, uh, band and song that I picked was, uh, a band called the after image with a song called mirrors, um, really kind of soaring chorus that I really enjoy, just very melodic, um, while still being a pretty heavy song. Um, but the, uh, lyrics during the, during the chorus, just, uh, talk about staring, staring into the night sky, into the bright lights. And it's just like, you know, we're, we're witnessing some, some potentially very bright lights in the men's national team right now. Um, so just trying to enjoy, enjoy the, uh, the potential, um, here. And then, um, the second song that I picked is from a band called pretty well-known band, I would say in the scene called Emery, um, with their song churches and serial killers, which doesn't have anything to do with the lyrical content that I'm referring to. Um, but the, uh, the ending sort of like the bridge into the kind of like ending chorus and what, as it fades out, um, it just says like, catch me, I'm slipping through your fingers. And that's Eunice Musa. We got to catch him before he slips through. We got to get him. (laughs) He's what can we do to like (laughs) convince him? (sighs) I don't know. I do. I mean, do we, do we, Break out the water burger now or later? I was gonna say. I was gonna say that's uh, just be like green chili double. Like, is that like what's? I fully expect Weston McKinney to be taking on this mantle as yes. a Texas boy. Yes, <laughs> McKinney should. If if Musa does not commit to the men's national team, then we know that Weston dropped the ball. Like for sure, 100%. <laughs> I like those picks though, Phil. Those are good yeah. ones. Yeah, and uh the the key of both of those songs is that just like super catchy and like melodic and and just while still being, you know, nice and intense as you'd expect from hardcore football. So Mika, am I uh am I forgetting anything before we before we leave these these good people on our way? Uh, the leagues are back, Europe is back this coming weekend, thank God. Um <laughs> Uh, well, let's. What's the one fixture you're looking forward to? 
Oh man. Let's leave with that. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um I think gosh, there's going to be tons um because that's just the nature of of soccer these days. Um and indeed, well, it's interesting Friday the the there's actually a giant matchup in France. Um Monaco plays PSG on a Friday Friday afternoon. So that so it comes back oh, sooner than uh sooner than we expect we'd uh expect but um yeah, for the whole weekend um not to be too biased towards our clubs, but that Sunday doubleheader of Leeds Arsenal and Liverpool Leicester, that's pretty tasty. That is. That it is to be fair. That that's going to be a goal fest or it should be at least. Um, yeah, those are some good ones. Uh, I am looking forward to Atletico Barca this weekend. Um, especially because they're now saying that Luis Suarez's COVID-19 diagnosis may have been a false positive Ooh. and they're going to test again to see if he's fit for that match. Cause that'll be of course his first time playing against Barcelona in the colors of Los Cotroneros. So obviously first and foremost, I hope he's healthy, but if he is available, that's the match of the weekend for me. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that'll be a fantastic game. Um, should be, should be fascinating. And yeah, him being involved will will add to it certainly. Yeah, um, for sure. I uh, I'm also interested to see that. Um, Marseille plays Nice as well. I think that's on Saturday, right? Yeah. Yeah, that'll be a good one too. Yeah. Nice has had a couple of big games in a row and, and they kind of, they kind of biffed it last weekend, but, or two weekends ago, I guess. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if they can, they can bounce back. And then Hertha Dortmund, I normally wouldn't have thought that that would be a great matchup, but Hertha has been playing some good stuff actually. So Hertha, Hertha could give Dortmund a little bit of a run here. Yeah, they have. And a certain Matteo Ganduzzi is, is showing up for, for Hertha recently. So yeah, Lots of good ones coming up. Tons of good ones. I'm so I'm I'm so looking forward to a weekend of being able to to get back in and and just watch as much as possible possible. For sure, for sure. All right. Well, hopefully everyone you have enjoyed um this episode if you have and the platform allows it you if you would please like leave a review or follow whatever the uh, platform allows Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts. Um, we're pretty much available wherever, um, check us out and, uh, yeah, any, any feedback that you want to leave, you can send to us at HXC football on Twitter. Um, we always enjoy interacting and, and answering questions or, you know, we've, we've talked about maybe conceptual episodes too. So there's always room for if you have ideas or, or random thoughts as you're watching a a weekend's worth of games, um, you're always free to let us, let us know those. And, uh, yeah, for me and Mika, uh, until next time guys. Um, yeah, we'll see you enjoy the weekend.